promises we have in your son, Jesus, God. One day we will be around the throne, God. This, this world, this life is not the end of the story, God, but the beginning. Christ's name, amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Will you tell them thank you for leading us this morning? Yeah. Well, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, Mark 12. It's where we'll begin. Uh, we're going to move around in Scripture just a little bit today as we finish up this series called Blended. We've been looking at this passage out of Mark that talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And we've been kind of doing it in a unique way. We've been teaching for about 15 minutes, and then we interview uh, people that are actually trying to live that out and connect with it uh, personally in their life. And uh, We've interviewed people in our church. I got to interview my family last week, and I'm excited about who we're going to interview here uh, today in just a little bit as well. But this idea blended is the idea that there are just things that connect together. There's things that ought to just match up in our lives. Christianity shouldn't be something in our lives that's like, well, it's a part of who I am at a certain time, and then there's part of who I'm not. I don't connect with it. It's always connected. It's always part of who we are. And I think about it in my life, uh, there are just some things like when you eat certain foods, they just go together, right? I mean, like peanut butter and chocolate. I mean, they just, I think God magically ordained those two things to fit together. I don't know who Mr. Reese's was when he created those amazing Reese's cups, but it was an act of God. I mean, I think it should be recorded in scripture somewhere the first time peanut butter and chocolate got together. What about like steak and potatoes, right? I mean, you just eat a steak. You're supposed to have some form of potato there with it. Milk and cookies, like a chocolate, hot chocolate chip cookie. I mean, can you eat that without a cold glass of milk? I've actually like, one time we were making cookies in the apartment and they came out and I was ready for one to open the fridge and the milk was not there. And I'm like, I cannot, I had to go downstairs. such a hard life, right? I had to go downstairs, urban market, grab some milk, come back up before I could enjoy that cookie. These things are just connected and in our life, loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself should just be who we are. It should be naturally blended into our life. It's not something that we pick up occasionally, something that we do once in a while. It should be who we are. And this is what Mark 12, 28 through 31 says. Look at it. It'll be on the screen as we read it. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, talking about Jesus, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is this. And he starts quoting out of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we have been journeying through this of how do we love God with our heart. Uh, it's what we're going to talk about today, soul, mind, strength, uh, and then love our neighbors as ourselves. And so this week as we move to the final part of how do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, I saved this one for the last because I believe it is the most personal kind of love. I also think it's the most fragile and delicate kind of love that we have. A love from the heart is at the very tip of our feelings. It's how we feel. It's what touches us. It's when it gets pricked. It's just we feel it all through our body. And just the smallest touch with a love from the heart, and it affects us tremendously. One time when I used to live in Georgia, I was uh, out 
working in the lawn, and I don't enjoy doing that. There's nothing about lawn work that I enjoy. That's one of the things I love about New York. I can just stare out at the beautiful park and glad somebody else takes care of that. But I was uh, had an electric hedge trimmer, and I was trimming some hedges, and uh, I did a stupid thing. The cord kind of got stuck, and so I grabbed it to move the cord, and when I did that, I brought the hedge clipper up, and I came right up on uh, the tip of my pinky, and I almost cut it off. It's still there. But I remember when I hit that one small little part of my body, like I instantly passed out. Like I was like, I think it was from the side of the blood, actually. But it was like so painful to me. I looked at that. I just, I fell down in my front yard. I mean, just that little tip of pain when I saw that, no matter the smallest part of my body, it affected me entirely. And that's what this kind of love of the heart does. As we're impacted, as we feel joy, it it can bring us immense joy. But as we're hurt, it can also bring us incredible amounts of pain. And when we learn to love the Lord God with all of our heart, though, it creates these deep connections that we can't have with just the love of the mind or the love of the soul. It has to come from the heart. So what does this idea of loving the Lord with our heart actually mean? The word heart here means palpitate. It actually means what gives us life. It's the beating of the heart. And it's what brings life into our lives. It's what we live from and what we live for. As I was reading it this week, one commentator described it as the will of your character. It actually, your heart is beating to make you do something, to put force behind who you are. You know, a person can Still, the body can still be there and the heart not be beating and there be no life in that. And so the palpitation of the heart is what gives us life. It gives us pursuits and it gives us passions. And the love to the Lord with all our heart means that the things that God is passionate about, the things that make God's heart beat are the things that begin to make our heart beat, our heart palpitate as well. This is what puts the force behind the will of our character and how we interact with the world. And so what are the things this morning that make God's heart beat? I want you to catch three things very quickly. First thing that really beats, makes God's heart beat is, is grace. We've been singing a lot about grace this morning. John 1 14 says this, the word became flesh. This is talking about Jesus and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. What full of grace and truth. The heartbeat of the father starts with grace Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world full of grace and delivered it to mankind. Grace isn't something that God just chooses to demonstrate on occasion in his natural stance. It is his typical way to approach man, his normal disposition, and it should be ours as well. A heart that loves God with all of our heart will be a heart full of grace for everyone. Not just some, not those that are just like us, not those that are lovable, but for everyone. That's what grace is. Grace isn't the ability to love those that deserve it. Grace is the ability to passionately love those who maybe don't deserve it or we have natural differences with, people that we don't normally connect with. Grace is the heartbeat of God, but it doesn't start, stop there. Second thing that makes God's heartbeat is the idea of redemption, of bringing redemption. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says it this way, In him we have what? Redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. God's heart beats for redemption. This is where Jesus poured out 
grace so that all of mankind could experience redemption. What is redemption? It is a deep, lasting, and permanent forgiveness. Hear that again. Redemption is a deep, it's to your very core, deep forgiveness. There is nothing that cannot be redeemed, but it's lasting. It holds on, it, it continues, and it is permanent. You're not going to wake up one day and not be able to receive the forgiveness of God. Redemption isn't the acceptance of apology. God isn't saying, okay, you said you're sorry, I'll accept that, but you still owe me. Redemption is the washing away of the stain of sin and the penalty of rebellion. Redemption isn't something God has to be convinced to do. It is something he has already done for us. In our heart, if it begins to beat that way, we should be eager for the redemption of everyone as well. We should be eager to forgive, slow to remember past sins, and ready to stand with anyone instead of standing against them. That's what makes God's heart beat. That's what should make our heart beat. But the final thing that makes God's heart beat is this, not just the redemption, but eventually restoration. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive. He's just to forgive, and that's the redemption part, but then it's also then to purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the restoration part. The heart of God is for restoration. Jesus, the Son of God who overcame the penalty of sin, he came that you and I would have a restored relationship with God. And let me tell you about this relationship. This relationship with God is not a restored to a slave-master relationship. Instead, Scripture says that we become citizens of the King of God. It's not that we did bad and he's like, all right, you can at least just come in and you be my slave. He says, no, you are citizens. It's not even a king and subject relationship because it says in Scripture that we have this powerful relationship that we become joint heirs in the kingdom of God. We get the inheritance of God as what we've been brought into the family. And that's the third part. This relationship is not just some nice friendship, some that, you know, hey, I know God. I can hang out with him. It's not just a friendship. Instead, it's an intimate relationship between a father and a child. This is what the heartbeat of God is for restoration. And we should have that same heartbeat to look to restore everyone. It's not holding grudges or elevating the differences we have with one another or creating barriers with certain types of people to make them jump over hoops and hurdles to get to us. Restoration is powerful and potent, and it will change our lives and change the lives of others. This is what you hear when you listen to the heartbeat of God. You hear grace. You hear redemption. You hear restoration. That should be our heartbeat as well. We should beat with grace, restoration, redemption. This is why this kind of love is so powerful. Because it comes from the very core of who we are. And when something goes against it, these things, it begins to work in our position. It breaks our heart and it aches for us. And we, we, we become overwhelmed when we see injustice and oppression. But just when we see it playing out in our lives, when we see this kind of grace and redemption and restoration playing out in our lives, we become overcome with joy and passion and hope and even move to tears. If you've been around me or if you've ever watched a movie with me, I cry very easily at movies. Like weird, strange moments in movies as well. I think I've told this story before, but here's why I knew something was wrong with me at some point. I was watching TBS one day and the movie Coyote Ugly came on. Like, if you've never seen this movie, it's basically about this woman who sings in a bar, all right? I mean, it, there's nothing like, 
wow, touching story. Except like she has this dream to sing on stage one day in front of her. At the end of this movie, she gets out to sing on the stage and she gets too nervous. And her boyfriend like cuts off all the lights so that she can go out and just sing with her heart and not worry about anybody looking at her. I'm watching this. I'm weeping. Like I'm weeping. And I'm like, what am I doing? Why is this? And it was like in this moment, I see it now. I'm justifying my actions. Like I saw him show her grace. He provided a way. He was loving her with all of his heart and it moved my heart. You don't have to go watch Coyote Ugly to get it this afternoon, but it's, I just get moved. God does that when we see our passion and grace and restoration and redemption poured out, our heart moves. But yet, I want to tell you, throughout history, there's typically been one driving force that eventually starts to work against these things, that pushes back on grace, that pushes back on restoration and redemption. And it works against the authority of God, and instead it elevates the authority of man. And this is where I want us to transition this morning and talk about something that really challenges us, something that we have to deal with all the time and something that that we as a country deal with. And it's the idea of how a man-made government can often push on these, push back on these. And we have to understand how do we operate as Christians in a culture, in a country, in a world, sometimes that the man-made government systems don't elevate these things. Because throughout history, this we've seen that. And actually, if you look back, In the Bible, uh, back in the nation of Israel, they were first founded. There was no king and no ruler. God was their authority. That's who they looked to. When when they formed, they didn't say, God didn't say, here is your man to follow. He said, follow me. And that was his original plan. But yet we're going to see in 1 Samuel 8 that the nation of Israel rebelled against this idea of God as their king and instead asked the prophet of God to say, give us a man to follow. Look at 1 Samuel 8, 6 through 7, it says this. But the thing displeased Samuel, what they asked for, when they said, give us a king to judge us. Now, I don't even know why you'd ask that. They're like, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God's desire for mankind has always been to have him as their primary authority to be able to come to him in the midst of their hardship and trials and experience grace, to come to him when they feel unworthy and be redeemed, to come to him when they feel broken and be restored. But instead, people then and even people in our times and history continue to rebel against the authority of God and instead desire a man-made authority to rule over them. This is crazy. I mean, I'm not saying we should go overthrow the government. That If you're listening, government, I'm not saying that today. Someone, though... We basically say, would you find someone who's just like me and put them over me? The only difference is I'm going to give them control of my life. And God says, why are you doing that with anybody but me? And God warned them against what would happen. Look at this in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. This is what he warns. So Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said this, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and be his horsemen, and run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and make his implements of war, and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, and cooks, and bakers. He will take your best of your fields, and your vineyards, and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. 
He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your young donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. And he's like, are you sure this is what you want? And in the next verse, they're like, yeah, bring it on. I mean, it's crazy. It is crazy. Even with all these warnings, the people cried out and said, yeah, God, give it to us. And he said, look, I will bring you grace, redemption, and restoration. If you choose this, all you're going to get is justice, punishment, and restitution. Are you sure that's what you want? Are you sure that's the choice you want to make? And when we choose man-made authority and we elevate man-made authority over God's authority, we elevate something that is literally pushing back on the heartbeat of God. And if you look at history, almost every government in history follows this cycle where they maybe form out of a good reason. I kind of wrote this down here. Many governments formed to solve a problem. They rebel against oppression. People are being oppressed. So they rebel. And as they rebel, the rebellion takes root. It creates prosperity. And so there's prosperity and people are happy. It brings justice back to what was needed. And then they want to protect that prosperity. So they develop protection and ways, talk about the chariots and the implements of war to, to keep what we have. And then they elevate patriotism, national pride and accomplishment. Look what we did. And as they do that, then they begin to embrace prejudice. And they start to talk about the people who aren't like us. And they start to build walls and borders and keep people out, which eventually creates problems of injustice and oppression that need to what? Be overcome with again. It's just this cycle of man-made authority, whether it's whatever you call it, whatever label democracy to communism you put on it, none of them work like the authority of God. And this is why our world seems so broken. It's why our hearts often seem so broken over oppression and injustice because human authority is not the answer. So the question I want us to struggle with today in just a couple minutes and with our interview is this. How do we as followers of Christ get back to elevating God over country? How do we pursue peace with God over passionate patriotism? How can we allow God to operate as our authority while still existing under the governmental authorities of this world? And this is what Romans 13 is talking about. Romans 13 is a key passage in this. And if you have actually been following the news at all, I'm going to give you some background on this. This was used recently to talk about as the scripture as a justification for a policy that was separating children from their families as people were crossing our southern border. It was used as an example of the government's right to exercise its laws no matter the consequence and without regard to the heart of God, the Bible that it's quoted from. And I want you to hear this morning, that is not the meaning of this passage at all. As a matter of fact, the audience of this passage has more in common with the refugees and immigrants that are crossing our border than with government officials. The book of Romans that this was found in was written to Christian church in Rome. At the time, Christians were a very small minority in Rome, and there was a growing tide of anger toward both the Jews and the Christians in Rome. They were just a few years away from what would be known as the Great Persecution enacted under Emperor Nero. This book was not written to Roman officials to tell them how to govern rightly. Instead, it was written to Christians in the city that was openly hostile to their beliefs and practices. And the goal of Paul here is to let them know how to abide with God while continuing to obey the law. 
And we don't have time today to read through the entire chapter or to study it completely in depth. But what I want to do is summarize a couple of truths that we can grab today to hold on to that I think will set us up for this uh, interview as we talk about how do we love the Lord through grace, redemption, and restoration, even when government authorities work against such practices. So let me give you a couple of truths to think about. Truth number one is this. How do we do this? We are called to participate in government without having to elevate government authorities. We're called to participate without having to elevate. This is Romans 3, 1, 13, 1 through 4. Paul tells us we just can't ignore government authorities. That's not, our, we can't choose not to do that. That there will be consequences of not just denying their authority, but understand it's just as dangerous as defying the authority of God because God has put them there. So how do we participate? I think it's one of the ways I've learned is this. Be active, but don't be naive. Exercise your rights and duties as a citizen, but don't get so blinded by your patriotism that you can't fathom that there are rulers and authorities that will use and take advantage of other people. Don't be, be active, but don't be naive. Because here's what happens. When we become naive and, and we start to participate and we start to elevate, it's like this idea of politics gets intertwined in everything in our life. We've talked about how the gospel ought to be blended into our life. Instead, sometimes we let politics, and it gets in, and it starts to influence every decision instead of allowing God as the authority to do that. The second truth is this. We are challenged to contribute without having to collaborate with governing authorities. This is Romans 13, 5 through 7. It says, talks about you should contribute by serving and paying your taxes. I wish we could opt out because we didn't agree uh, with the government policies. and be like, I'm not paying taxes this week. I don't like what you did. I wish it would work that way, but it doesn't. We don't have to, but yet we don't have to collaborate with the government on policies that push against our calling to love with grace, redemption, and restoration. How do we do this? Be respectful without being irrational. You can respect the position of authority even when you don't respect the person or the policies. Becoming irrational in either our support or our disdain for government is not wise. Our goal isn't to have a perfect government. We never will. But to find ways to show the perfect love of God no matter what the government is. The third truth that I want to hit before we hit our interview is this. We are commanded to show compassion even against the compulsion of governing authorities. And this is 13, 8 through 12. It says that, look, you should love. You should owe no man anything except a debt of love. Never let anyone say that you can't love others. If our government starts in certain ways saying, you know what, you shouldn't love these people. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't. You should stop showing grace and redemption and restoration to these people. We shouldn't do it. And here's the idea. How do we do this? Be righteous without being rebellious. The goal of Christ and our goal isn't to overthrow the government. Jesus didn't come into Jewish culture in a time of Roman occupation and lead a revolt. He led with righteousness. And that's our goal as well. We're called to live righteously, even when it means disobeying policies and laws that would restrict us from doing that. I want to close with a key thought. Sometimes, though, we get upset when our government simply elevates the views of other religions and other cultures instead of ours. We're in a time like that in our country, right, where the Christian voice is not as heard as it used to be. Right? Our, our, our culture and our our country used to be dominated by this one voice. And now there are many voices being heard. And some of us as followers of Christ get angry about that. Like, no, we want our voice to be heard more. It's not the government's job to elevate our voice. 
Now, when they start restricting and putting hamperance on there, we should stand and be righteous about it. And I want to give you an example of how I've seen this play out tangibly. So there's a lot of people say, you know, prayer was taken out of school. Prayer was removed from school back in the 70s, I think it was. But I want you to hear, prayer actually was not removed from school. You can go and pray. Any student has the right to pray in school anytime they want. They can pray. Many of them probably pray before a test. Like, please, God. I didn't study, but help it out, all right? So it, didn't, it did not take away their right to pray. What it did was this. It took away the government-sanctioned times of prayer. Now, do I wish maybe we had some sanctioned times of prayer? Yeah, and like I, I enjoyed that. I remember doing that some. But here's the difference. There's a story of a friend I know of a coach who, after a football game, prayed with a number of students who willingly joined him to pray after a football game, and he was fired. See, I think that is holding back. Versus, that's restricting versus saying we're not going to elevate. And we get upset sometimes when we don't just get elevated. And what happens when this doesn't play out in our life, when we don't learn to, to push back in the right ways and live in the right ways? I think three things start to happen. We elevate the view of our nation. And we think that our nation is a chosen nation. We think that God has chosen us. So we, we equate the expression of Christianity in our culture to be the only true form of Christianity in every other culture. And instead of believing that the gospel can adapt to any culture. And second thing is this, then we elevate the role of government. We think its primary purpose is creating a safe environment for us to practice our religion. It isn't the government's job to protect our religious liberties. It's our calling to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, no matter what environment the authorities set up. Think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were to live righteous lives, even in a very difficult government. And the third thing we do is this. We intertwine our faith with specific government policies or parties. There's not one party or one policy that's righteous. There is no man-made authority that can overcome the authority of God. What I want us to close with this morning, I've asked Michael and Kay to, uh, to come for our interview this morning. You guys come on up. I mean, uh, if you have not met uh, Michael and Kay, uh, they've been a part of our church family uh, from the very beginning. And um, Michael has uh, served in Washington, D.C. He served on Ted Kennedy's uh, staff there, uh, now works with the Rockefeller uh, Foundation. Kay works with the uh, Lutheran uh, Refugee uh, Resettlement. I'll let them tell you more about that. But they have been living uh, for years what it means to do this, to be people of faith in the midst of uh, a government and helping to enact policy and procedure. And so as we get started, Michael and Clay, you can explain kind of what you guys do maybe a little bit better, but how have each of you kind of lived out your, your heartbeat, your will of character that we talked about through your professional lives? Will you tell them thanks this morning, by the way, for coming up? <laughs> I haven't always, actually. Um, I remember serving in the Peace Corps a very long time ago in Africa, and I had the good fortune to meet an amazing family mm. who serving as missionaries. And I think that, that sparked a little bit. And then I moved to Washington after serving in Africa and um, joined a church-based or a faith-based organization, and I think started to, to really make that connection even as my faith journey was going along and I'd say over the years um, my faith deepened and very much because I work with um, a a group of people that that can be kind of highly charged (laughs) 
in terms of politics and policy, but not so highly charged in terms of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So it just got deeper and deeper, and it just, it's, you know, my last organization, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, another faith-based organization, it's been very important to me um, to have that faith connection. Yeah, as, as Patrick said, um, I had the deep honor of working for Senator Ted Kennedy for 23 years. And the last 12 of those, I was his chief of staff, so I was involved in everything. And it, I had the, the privilege then of working with three American presidents uh, over that period, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, you know, meetings in the Oval Office, all the cool stuff, <laughs> everything except flying on Air Force One. I never got on Air Force One, but I got to do a lot of the other uh, very amazing things. It, it's really easy in these circumstances to kind of get caught up with the trappings of power. <laughs> and I think that's some of what happens with our, our leaders from time to time, that it's all about power, you know, who's up and who's down, and less, and less about you know, what, what are we doing for people. I, I don't mean to sound self-righteous, but I kept a Bible on my desk <laughs> all the time, and I had it tabbed at Matthew 25. And that is where some of the last words of Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples, his last bit of instruction before he was taken and killed, were, you know, take care of people, take care of the poor, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, do all of those things. And if you do them for them, you're doing it for mm. me. And just, so, just trying to keep myself humble and to remind myself that that's, that's what uh, my work was about. Wow. And that's uh, what you guys shared is one of the main reasons I wanted us to have this conversation today because your passions and your pursuits have been right in this vein of what we talked about today in Scripture of man-made authority versus, you know, God's authority. And so a couple of questions I want us to grapple with is there is like you you both have served and been a part of maybe political systems that have helped or been a detriment to that. So how are you able to function and still move forward even if a political system creates areas of disagreement with your God-given passion and pursuits, how can you basically participate without elevating? I think that participation really is the key. It's, it's not giving up. It really mm. is knowing that, that many things can take a long time and relying on faith and prayer. And so sometimes it's resisting, sometimes... Um, the policies are just working out exactly the way that you think that they should. Many, time that, many times they're not. Um, for many years, because I work with refugees and immigrants, Washington wasn't a problem. I mean, President Reagan admitted more refugees than any president has in the modern history of, of the refugee program. I think um, it certainly has been much more of a challenge um, in these last two years. And so I think staying the course um, needing a lot of prayer to do it has been my way of participating. Mm. Like Kay, when we speak of previous U.S. administrations, there were points, sharp points of disagreement. Um, you know, I worked for a, a liberal senator. I'm a liberal Democrat myself, if, if you haven't figured that out already. <laughs> um, and so there were, we'd win some, we'd lose some. Uh, and some of the wins um, keep you going, like... Um, we, I was part of creating the prescription drug benefit in, in, in um, Medicare, Medicare Part D. We, we did that with President Bush. Um, part of my last bill was the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. 
So um, you know, we did, did that with, with President Obama. But in between, there are a lot of things. And, and I, I guess, Patrick, what I, what I tried to do, probably not successfully, was not to make it too personal. Mm. And to, um, you know, when there were disagreements with President Bush over the war in Iraq, which I felt was an unjust war, Senator Kennedy did too. Um, not make it, try not to make it personal, even though it's big things like that. And I think maybe part of that is, is also, you were talking earlier about love mm -hmm. as being the, the primary law for us and is trying to, to um, display that love even when you're working with people um, with whom you have sharp disagreements. Mm -hmm. it, I admit in this uh, administration, I'm having a really hard time mm -hmm. doing that. So that, I think that leads to, to the great next question is like, you know, we live in a culture right now, political culture, where if one side wins, the other side feels like they lose. And if they, so it's, we, we typically, you know, if one side says, hey, I was for this two years ago and now I'm against it, it just sometimes flip-flops back and forth. And so how do we, I think building off what you just said, how do you continue then to contribute you know, how could you want the good that maybe even this, if this administration got the credit for it? So how do you continue to contribute without saying, hey, I want to collaborate together and further an agenda that I disagree with? I, for, for me, um, it, it's often trying to find another way to get done what mm -hmm. it is you want to get done. So, um, you know, there, I may not be able to do anything with this president. I don't know if, if it'll, anything will work out even in my present job. But the, I, I, I can do things like work with governors and mayors. I can work on things like uh, climate change with um, private sector, with corporate, corporate leaders, mm -hmm. and try to get at it that way, even when my government is hostile to what I think is, is um, our Christian obligation. Right. So let me let me say yeah. something as you answer this. So Kay's job has specifically been impacted by this administration and by the the uh, refugee policies. I mean, your organization has almost been cut in half or more yeah. Uh, yeah. through this. And so, I mean, it's it's not just oh, okay, we'll continue to do our. It's it's impacted even your level of how do you contribute what you were doing. So how, how have you been dealing with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael will tell you if I, I've I've cried a lot. <laughs> um, there, there really are, well, it, it has been extremely difficult, particularly really in the last, um, uh, this year, and, and then with the, the announcement um, that for a misdemeanor offense, the same offense as impersonating a 4-H, you know, member, mm -hmm. believe it or not, your child, your breastfeeding child, your four-year-old can be removed and you can be incarcerated. And we pushed really, really hard, obviously, on that. Mm -hmm. um, part of our mission at LIRS is, is to offer prophetic witness. And so for me, witnessing in any way I can has been very important. In this particular issue, um, people that had pushed away on refugees, which was shocking to me, <laughs> considering mm -hmm. the Bible, wondering what Bible they were reading, finally spoke out against mm -hmm. this. And so um, finding those allies and, and, and really, again, pushing hard, um, you know, has been really important, but also exhausting. Yeah. 
because it's not over yet. Um, yes, there was a slight retreat, but the idea that, that kids will be with their parents but in jail goes against yeah. everything, frankly, I think this country stands for and certainly is an immoral thing. And so just trying to keep witnessing, keep finding allies, realizing that there are a lot of people who care about this issue that kind of were unexpected. Mm-hmm. Find those people and keep talking and keep praying and keep witnessing. I love your illustration of basically holding the line, right? I mean, you're like, um, yeah. even though the tide <laughs> yeah. seems to be pushing against you in this one issue, like, how do you hold that line of compassion and grace and restoration and hope? So yeah. I love that imagery. So let, let's flip to, like, that's ideas maybe when policy pushes back, but... How do you handle when you feel like the decisions of our of a political system create moral challenges to you showing compassion? So where you feel like, man, this is just not godly. Like, how do you uh, how do you push on that? How do you live that out when it may cost you uh, dearly? Well, I, these last two weeks have been tough because you know we're in an interesting position. The organization that I work with, some of the kids who've been separated by their from their families are kids that we take care of. Mm. We find loving foster homes for them. And we've actually been accused of collaborating with the policy. For us, you know, we have been doing this for a long time. So it's very easy for us to say, no, we take care of children. Mm. Um, And so, um, and I just completely lost my train of thought. What, what, what else was I going to say? Pushing back on the policy. Pushing back on the policy. Well, and so um, we were very, very vocal, um, and we continue to be very vocal. There's a chance that I might go see Secretary Nielsen in mm-hmm. a few weeks, and I'm trying to figure out how that's, how that's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and But we're pushing against the government, and so there is a risk for us. You know, we may not be able to continue to work with the government. This this is funding that that could be devastating if we lost it. But we believe in how we're taking care of Mm. kids. We believe that the policy is wrong, and we're going to speak out against the policy. We can't stop. That's great. Michael, any thought on that one? It's hard to top that. I know. (laughs) Pushing back, I think, is part of our... our you know, yeah. from a point of faith and love is very important. And I, I'm still grateful we live in a society culture where we have the freedom to push back. Yeah. You know, there that's certainly not true in uh, every culture and every Christian Christianity doesn't uh, have to do that. So la- last question I want to throw out there as we finish up is this. Look, uh, I, can, I can't think of a president, and Michael, you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I can't think of a president who has not called himself a Christian. Uh, you know, we've had... Catholic and uh, Presbyterian, I mean, all you know, Protestant, uh, yet we've seen very different takes on how that would play, should play out in policy and government. With you guys' experience, how do you feel Jesus teaches us that we should intertwine our faith and our politics? Um, I am of, of the belief that our, our politics should be uh, derived from our faith. Mm-hmm. Um, for me... Um, there, in politics, you find some people who just like politics, and mm. for them, politics is the end of itself. You know, the game, who's up, who's down, all of that. Um, I, I prefer to think of politics as a means to an end, and so it's it's the way you get to 
certain policies and influence the electorate and so forth so that you can do some exciting and good things. So having that as your ends in, the, in politics be kind of coming from your faith and, and wrapped in God's love, and uh, I, that to me is, is, mm-hmm. is how I intertwine them. It, um, it's not to say that we take all the policies I've worked on and the laws I've worked on, I can cite a chapter and verse in right. the Bible, yeah. <laughs> why we did Medicare Part D or something like that. <laughs> Malachi That's right, Malachi. <laughs> but, but still, I, I, I very much felt that um, you know, there are senior citizens who had a Medicare benefit, but they had to pay for their own prescription drugs or you know, get a, another insurance policy to wrap around their uh, Medicare coverage. Um, that's that just felt wrong, mm-hmm. and it's certainly not the compassion that we th- uh, witnessed in the Bible with uh, Jesus's time on Earth. So having that kind of vision and that grounding as you're pursuing your politics, I think that's makes a, a difference. That's a great point. Anything on that? So when Attorney General Jeff Sessions used a part of Romans 13 that honestly was used to justify slavery. He picked one tiny little phrase, and so for us, again, as a faith-based agency, we really needed to push back on that. Um, And so you alluded to to the verses, and I'll just say it again. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's where it starts. That's where it comes out. Thank you guys so much. And uh, if you need some people to pray for, uh, these are two people that you can be praying for. I mean, they, uh, this is, I mean, Kay and I've been, we've been, as family's been talking about this, this has been a very difficult season for you the last two years. And, uh, you know, decisions that you hear on the news or come across, you know, your phone or whatever, like they impact her tomorrow. And, uh, Michael is now working with the Rockefeller Foundation on their policy and how they can engage in policy. So these are two people who I trust to walk with the passion and the, the grace and the restoration and the redemption of Christ and try to make that policy. So be praying for them. Tell them thank you for sharing with us today. Great job, guys. I want to uh, pray for us. After we pray, we'll uh, receive our offering. And uh, I want to say this. I love that we are a church that can have these kind of discussions. That uh, look, I'm sure everybody sitting in here doesn't have the same view on some policies uh, that maybe these two do or I do, and that's okay. We we talk about it all the time. We elevate uh, unity over uniformity. It's not that we got to have everybody think alike or agree on everything, but we can find unity in the gospel. That the heartbeat of God is grace, redemption, and restoration, and that's what we walk in. Let me pray for us. We'll take our offering, and I'll uh, remind us of a couple of announcements. Father, thanks for this day, and thanks for the way you lay out in Scripture how we are to abide under human authority, uh, but yet continue uh, to follow you and to make your light shine even in dark times. God, we do pray for Michael and Kay and are grateful for their testimony uh, of how they've tried to hold on to your gospel and the truth of your gospel as they have walked through this in a policy and political setting. So God, we love you. Teach us. uh, Allow us to be lights and peacemakers during this time. In your son's name we pray. Amen.